Ali, you know the White House? That, that big building in America. That big building in America. In these two weeks where we are in the intermission of the inauguration with this crazy man running it, what would you call the White House in these two weeks? Would you have another name for it? It's, it's pretty bleak over there right now. It might be a bleak house. It could be a bleak house. That's what I was thinking. And what a seamless transition to our, to our novel that we're talking about. What a coincidence. I didn't know you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just mad, isn't it? Like all the, all the coincidences. We talk about Dickens having coincidences, but it's like everything's going on at the moment. It's just crazy. <laughs> It's so funny that you say that because that is a very, very bleak, bleak house. And the real bleak house, not the novel, but the actual house itself, was Dickens's home that he visited in Kent every summer. And the house used to be called Fort House. And then after he died, they changed it to Bleak House. Wow. That's nice that they did that. And it's, it's got a bit of poignancy to it, hasn't it? Because, you know, we'll go through the synopsis, but I could be wrong in thinking that at the end, the main character, when he gives the house to his, the woman who he was engaged to be with as a present, he calls it again, bleak house. So it's like, start again. It's like a, it's, it's like a, it's a nice name for a, for a rebirth of a new life in a way. So we are doing bleak house this week. If you hadn't guessed by the many times that we've said that this is one of Dickens's more famous novels. There's quite a few adaptations of it, but it is a very fiddly fiddly story most of his books were released in sort of like 12 installments this one was released in 20 monthly installments between 1852 and 1853 from march to september and there are a lot of characters a huge amount goes on but i would say the main crux of the story is that it all sort of revolves around a fictional court case jarndyce and jarndyce Yes, it, the, the main thing to say is it deals with this ongoing hanging case called Jarndyce and Jarndyce, where the Jarndyce family await the outcome to inherit money and the testator has written several conflicting wills. So it's, it, it's, it's a kind of almost in a way satirical look at how long sometimes these cases tend to get solved. So the, the main thing to say is over the course of this huge story, um, this case is kind of hanging in the background as this ongoing unanswered question it's a way of almost keeping the audience in suspense because that's the big thing that we're all wanting to know what happens in uh, you know over the course of the whole story yeah so you say the Jonathan Jarvis case is very long-winded and it takes through the whole story and it's it is based on on real cases um there was one case that took 36 years and I think the term now, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, is still used to this day to describe really, really long court cases. And I think a lot of it is inspired by one of Dickens's own experiences in the courts. Yeah, do you know, I'm reading his biography at the moment, and it's absolutely fascinating. And it talks about, I mean, you know, you just, you just really get the sense of you know, his obsession with the legal system and his obsession with prisons and the waiting and the trials. And it almost comes up in every, I, I'm trying to think whether it comes up in every single story. We don't see a court in A Christmas Carol, but you know, you, 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 you see it a lot. Well, you say that you don't see a court in A Christmas Carol, but the court case that was the one that he was tangled up in the most is all because of A Christmas Carol. So the, the long court case that he got stuck in in, in 1843, that court case has led him to, to write this book. 
No way. Yeah. And that's with all of the um, publications. Before we dive into all the other facts that we have about this, shall we do a quick, well, as quick as we can with this particular novel plot breakdown? Uh, yes, we can. So, as we said, it's, it deals with this ongoing hanging case called Jandice and Jandice, where the Jandice family await the outcome. Now, at the centre of the novel, we have Lady Deadlock, who believes her daughter is dead, and she is living with Sir Lester Deadlock, However, her daughter is in fact alive and she's called Esther. She doesn't know Lady Deadlock is her mother. Now, Esther is assigned to a guardian, John Jandice, and she is sent to live with him in Bleak House. At the same time, Jandice takes the custody of two other young people, Richard Carstone and Ida Clare, who are beneficiaries of the wills. Richard and Ida are quite quickly fall in love and it becomes clear that John Dandice, the guardian, is a bit uncomfortable with it, wanting Richard to choose a profession to support Ida and not just hold out for this court case. Now, meanwhile, Lester and Lady Deadlock have this quite horrible family solicitor called Mr. Tulkinghorn, and he has managed to trace the copyist of the will to someone called Nemo, who he locates and finds dead. The only person who knows of him is a young sweeper boy called Joe. A lady Deadlock disguises herself as her maid, Mademoiselle Hortense, and finds Joe, but Tolkienhorn doesn't want Lady Deadlock's secret, that she has a secret daughter, getting back to her husband, so he tries to find young Joe and run him out of town. Esther, meanwhile, Lady Deadlock's secret daughter, has become sick with smallpox, and Lady Deadlock tells her she is her mother and they must keep it a secret. Meanwhile, Richard Carestone is failing at all his professions and pushing the Jandice and Jandice case to get the inheritance. He secretly married Ada. He is also very ill. Esther meets a doctor called Mr. Woodcourt and falls in love with him, but has actually just got engaged to her guardian, John Jandice. Mr. Tolkinghorn, meanwhile, fires the maid of Lady Deadlock, Mademoiselle Hortense, and Mademoiselle Hortense in turn kills Tulkinghorn and frames Lady Deadlock for the murder. Then a bit of an investigation story into the murder pursues, where a man called Inspector Bucket starts interviewing the suspects to Tulkinghorn's murder. He suspects Lady Deadlock, but then clears her when he learns of the maid's guilt. Sir Lester finds out the truth of his wife's secret child and has a stroke, but forgives his wife. Sadly, Lady Deadlock has already left the house, feeling abandoned and kills herself at the cemetery of her former lover and father of Esther, Captain Horden. Meanwhile, Richard, who is at this point nearing death, is happy to learn that he has won the case and will be left the inheritance. However, learns that all of the costs consume the estate. So Richard collapses upon hearing this and Mr. Woodcourt confirms him of being in the last stages of tuberculosis. Now the novel ends with John Jandice taking in Ida, who has a son, she names Richard, and Jandice gives Esther another house for her and Mr. Woodcourt, who he always knew she really loved. And they have two daughters. It's big. It's a, there's an awful lot going on and there's a lot of characters that all intertwine and it's very Dickensian in that sort of way. Um, we've talked before on previous episodes about how there are only two novels that are written from the first person perspective and that was David Copperfield and Great Expectations. But actually Bleak House is also written from the perspective of Esther Summerson as well as some sort of like ambiguous voice that tells us the rest of the story. She's also the only female narrator in any of Dickens's books. He's never written from a female perspective apart from in this one story. And it was not well received. 
people have criticized her character so strongly. Charlotte Bronte, the incredibly famous author, she described Esther as weak and twaddling. Weak and twaddling. I thought the opposite. I really liked Esther. I thought she was, um, I thought she was an extraordinary character. I disagree with, uh, with Bronte. I think she's, um, she's wonderful. I think she's strong. I think she's um, incredibly patient. I think she deals with a huge amount of overwhelming information, such as finding out who her mother is at that point and just keeping it, keeping it under the surface and, and, and making all the right decisions and giving people good advice. So I really liked her as a character. Um, and it would be very interesting to know what his headspace was when he was um, deciding to, to do that. Yeah, I think Charlotte Bronte is being a little harsh there because I, I can see what, where she's coming from, but I, I think it's very deliberate. And I don't think it's necessarily true that she's weak and twaddling, as Charlotte Bronte said that she was. I think she's a very modest character. So even though she's intelligent, she writes as a narrator saying, you know, she's worried that she's not going to be clever enough to tell the story properly. She's modest. And I think modesty doesn't mean that you're weak. I think it's just... It's a different quality and you don't have to be the loudest voice in the room to, to be intelligent. And I, I think that's, that's a, a real thing with her. She, she does get stronger as the novel goes on and she finds her, her confidence and, and her, her, her voice a little bit more. But I, I, I don't, yeah, I'm with you. I don't see her as weak. Not at all. I think I think she's a fascinating character, and 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 again, like we said, nuanced. Like that, you sometimes come across some of his nuance. It's a brilliant story. I've got so many questions to, to ask you about the themes in it and about some of the characters because there's so much going on. Let's start with Mister Tolkienhorn because he is unbelievably unpleasant. He's the family solicitor, and he's pursuing this case. He's stopping at nothing to get what he wants. There is this theme in the story of power and male dominance and he's very very controlling of um lady deadlock and almost has this kind of hold over her and it's interesting looking at it now especially in a kind of post me too age um because i don't know about you but when i you know when i was reading it i i didn't really fully understand his motivations apart from just wanting to be as controlling as possible and i just wanted to sort of Talk about this a little bit because he it is he he stops at nothing to get what he wants, and uh, Charles Dance. People can go to BBC iPlayer and watch this this version, which is actually done episodically. It's done as Dickens would have written the cliffhanger, and it's absolutely brilliant. There's 15 episodes, and Charles Dance plays the character so 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 well. So there is this theme of control. There's this theme of power going on. He's stopping at nothing, and interestingly as I said in the synopsis, the person who they locate as being, you know, the handwriting of the will is called Nemo and he's trying to find him. So I don't know, I haven't looked this up, but I am wondering whether the creator of Finding Nemo was inspired by Mr. Tolkienhorn's pursuit of uh, this guy Nemo. <laughs> I, I wish that was true. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It is. He's he doesn't stop at anything. And he basically built his whole business around sort of other people's secrets. The lawyers in Dickens's book all seem fairly unpleasant. And I think he did have this idea of the law and the idea of, um, 
order and rules and the establishment and it's in a you know in a slightly negative way and Tolkienhorn is the is the kind of embodiment of that he is the person who's working for Lady Deadlock um, seems to have this kind of weird protection of her husband Celeste almost like strange and a bit creepy and he just does all these horrible things like he makes these promises and he says if you give me this information I'll settle your debts um, and this guy goes okay fine gives him the information he's like no I'm not going to settle your debts and just you know doesn't keep to any promises and he uses words and the law to kind of get what he wants and it's all about how he kind of frames and and screws over people I think it's a very interesting analysis of how uh, you know what Dickens thinks of the law and how people can get away with doing awful things to the vulnerable yeah and he used this book like he does with many of his other books like with Oliver showing and exposing the workhouses he used this book to help spur British legal reforms so again he really shone a light on how the court cases worked like how absurd he thought they were and how the the chancery courts in England like clearly stalled cases to try and prolong legal payments did it deliberately so it lasts for decades and decades and again he makes this book and after publishing it, it it brings this all to light and that really helped with the reforms to the courts one of the things that i really took home from it almost as a lesson it's trying to say is this guy richard carestone um has learnt that he might be a benefactor to the will like if the case is solved if this ongoing long case is eventually solved he might fall into an enormous amount of money now what john jandice his guardian says to him is for heaven's sake don't put it all on black. Don't gamble it. You know, you want to go and find a profession. You want to be with this, you know, if, if, if you want to get married to Ada, you have to be able to financially support her. Don't put it all on this case. But Richard is very um, fleeting and he tries professions and he goes, ah, it's not for me. Ah, it's not for me. Ah, it's not for me. But I'm holding out for this case. And all the while he's putting so much pressure on this case that he makes himself ill. And it just goes on and on, even when he gets ill. And even when they say to him, look, Richard, it doesn't matter. Just don't stop thinking about the case. She loves you. She wants to be with you. It's all okay. He goes, no, no, no. It's all about the case. And it, I, I just think it's such an interesting character because you see that so much with people where they just take these unnecessary gambles financially and it's greed that's driving them. Mm. And actually it all can completely boomerang in their face and they can end up with with nothing. And actually when he finds out the good news at the end that he's going to be entitled to everything, he he then hears the bad news that actually it's all the costs that are going to go with that. So you could think that it's going to go your way, but actually um, something very bad and unexpected could easily turn around the corner. So I think there's a good lesson in there somewhere. It's very Ebenezer Scroogey as well, isn't it? That sort of, the, the young Ebenezer Scrooge we see in the, in the, the ghost of christmas past where he's focusing so much on the money and the wealth that he's completely ignoring his his love and ends up alone because of it absolutely absolutely it's that point when scrooge has the choice between enterprise and profiteering and business or his love and you're absolutely right there is this kind of heart against head there well one wonders where the dickens went through that i think that he kind of sees a lot of himself in these younger characters as you say the younger scrooge and carestone of having that decision of going oh do i want this do i want family life and love or do i want to you know he was probably conflicted with that a lot of the time i reckon so we've talked about a few of the characters in bleak house there is one character not a huge character but has the greatest death in any story do you know which one i'm talking about 
has the greatest death. Um, I'm trying to think how all their fates were met um, and how all the dots were, were joined up. Can you give me a clue? It's quite an explosive end. Oh, it's, it's Richard Kerstein in the cause. No, it's Crook. It's who? So Crook uh, is like an alcoholic rag and bottle dealer. And oh, yeah, he, yeah. He, has, he dies from spontaneous combustion. Oh, yes, of course he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, you say unbelievable, literally unbelievable. Even when it was written, people were like, this is, this is not a thing. Like scientists were like, the plausibility of this is, is inaccurate. And it's not, it's not the case. And we now have learned that spontaneous combustion is definitely not what happens. I listened to a podcast on about how it does happen and it's quite gruesome and wonderful. But yeah, it's just such a, a weird and wonderful thing to write into his novels, this, this character pretty much exploding. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And it's, yeah, as you say, quite literally unbelievable. Um, there's also something else going on, which is a theme that I've noticed a lot in Dickens, which is, we, we spoke about it a bit earlier with this idea of Tolkien Horn becoming obsessed with chasing Lady Deadlock. There's also another character called Guppy, who's like a kind of quite oily, slimy workman, and he becomes obsessed with Esther to the point where he just basically stalks her um, and stops at nothing and keeps stalking and stalking. And he's reminded me a lot of Uriah Heep and David Copperfield, who has this plan, obviously, as we said in that last book, to marry Agnes, and also reminds me a lot of um, in Edwin Drood, um, when we were talking about, um, you know, when he, when Jasper was stalking, was stalking her. So there is this continual theme of men stalking women. And it's very interesting as to why that is, as to why Dickens obviously had an obsession with men like that. Why do you think? I think most of the time with these characters that he writes, which are the creepy, stalky ones that like you're saying, they are based on people that he's known. So like we were saying on previous episodes, um, a publicist that he really hated, perhaps he had an experience with a creepy, lechy man um, going after his wife. But from his own personal life, he, he was also that creepy, lechy man going after young women. So those in glass houses don't throw stones. <laughs> What do you what do you think of Bleak House? What's your what's your kind of overall kind of take home of it compared to his other novels? I really enjoyed watching this one. Uh, reading it less so because it's very confusing with lots of different characters going on and lots of legal jargon and it's very rambly. So I think. It's one of those ones which like when you see it on a screen or on a stage, like visually, it's very, very stunning and you can get wrapped up in that world and the period drama of it is wonderful. It's not my favorite Dickens, um, but I do really enjoy it as a story, but only in like a visual regards. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think I can't work out whether I really, really loved it or whether I, whether it just sort of merged into all of them. I. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because in season one, we were doing Shakespeare. And when you do a shape, different Shakespeare play, you're literally stepping into completely different worlds. Whereas with Dickens, uh, it's a court case again. Uh, there's a lawyer. Oh, there's a little boy running through the streets who's very, very ill. Oh, there's a, there's a lovely woman. Oh, there's a scary, horrible woman. 
um, you, you just, do you know what I mean? It's almost like the same story, but woven into slightly different narratives and it can become quite similar. Yeah. And yeah, so I, you, like watching Bleak House, having spoken about seven of his uh, books already, it becomes quite samey and maybe that's something to do with where that's placed and the fact that it's our eighth one and we've seen all the ones before it. But I think what I like about it is I like the fact that there is this hanging suspense. I think that is something which is, is very cleverly done and, you know, almost Hitchcockian in that sense where there is this unanswered question lingering for the whole story. Mm. And I think that's a very clever way of, you know, keeping the audience and structurally it seems to work at all the right points, but I don't personally think it's on the same part as a Christmas Carol and David Copperfield as a story, because I think they are just, you know, there's a simplicity to them that I think works really, really well. Yeah. I think that's it, isn't it? With this one, there's, there's no sort of, direct line through and we have a guest on later who's done an adaptation of it but she was only given a cast of five people and the thought of of turning this into a cast of five actors is seems like a very daunting task yes i, I completely agree and i don't know how on earth she managed to do that and I'm, I'm really looking forward to finding that out i suppose also you know what's been it so interesting about this you know seeing it in this kind of serial format on the bbc is you really see the cliffhangers and you really it really brings to the surface his style of writing and you can see how he wrote you know when he was a journalist the idea of keeping the viewer in suspense the idea of literally being paid to give the public what they want it is interesting his journalistic approach i think is is um very very clear when you look at uh, the bbc iplayer version for sure yeah I, I think you're totally right. And I think that's probably why I enjoyed watching it um, more than, than reading it because exactly like you said, it's episodic, like it would have been when it came back, when originally it was, it was printed. I mean, a lot of people say that it's his best work, which is interesting because I, I wouldn't say it's his best work, but I think what they might mean by that is, I don't know what you think, but I think, I think writers are either very, very good character writers or very, very good plot writers. I think, the, personally, the cases with Dickens, the characters are incredible, but sometimes the plot, he's a bit like, ah, okay, um, right, where are we? Okay, we'll just make them all related at the end. Okay, <laughs> it's all plodding along nicely, and, ah, oh, God, I haven't thought about this. Okay, right, you can be married to you, and you can be the aunt of you, and I know it's a huge coincidence that you would have ran into you on a street, but we'll make you brothers, and, and I think that sometimes happens, certainly in some of his other works, like Oliver and, 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 and you know, Great Expectations, but I think with this, I think what's nice is that you don't have that so much. And we don't have that weird last minute whip round in the final chapter of like, okay, right. Uh, how are we going to join this all up? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it can feel very formulaic sometimes, can't it? Where you know that this character at the end of the novel is, is somehow going to be saved by that character because they're secretly related. And because it's so interesting because I've, I've read these books throughout my life at different stages at different times with other things in between. And so when we do a podcast and we're visiting them again weekly and I'm looking back at it, I'm like, Oh, it's such a formula that he he stuck to, but I guess it worked. And I suppose when you are releasing it every month over the course of a year or more, you sort of have to do it that way to keep it all straight and squared off in your head. Because if you think you started the first instalment twenty months ago, you've got to you've got to go back to it. And maybe it doesn't seem like such a neat little bow back then because you have had like a whole year in between. 
so you kind of forget these things. So maybe it's shocking as a, as a reader back then, if you're reading installments, maybe, maybe it is like, oh my goodness, I completely forgot about that. That's great. But where, when you see it all in one place from start to finish and you read it in one go, yeah, it can feel a little bit sort of, and here it is again. That's a really good point. Yeah. The episodic nature of it kind of feels a lot more natural, but when you read it all as one, it's a bit like, we're okay. So this is the part of the podcast where we bring in this week's lovely guest. Jimmy, can you please let us know who we have this week? So our next guest is a writer and a performer. Her writing career began with plays for the Edinburgh Fringe and various London youth theatres such as the Theatre Peckham, the Vaults and the Southwark Playhouse. As well as this, she is a globe storyteller, adapting and performing Shakespeare stories for events such as literary festivals, both in the UK and internationally. She is, however, also a composer, and we'll be discussing today her musical adaptation of Bleak House by Charles Dickens, which she wrote and composed and staged, as Ali said earlier, with just five actors in Blackwell's Bookshop in March 2020, with Creation Theatre. It's Olivia Mace. It's so nice to meet you both. Hello. It's so lovely Hello. to meet you, and thank you so much for, for joining us and being our guest for our Bleak House episode. Oh, no worries. It was exciting to be asked. So we've been talking a little bit about it before having you come on. And there is gosh, a million trillion characters in this book. So we are just curious, how did you manage it with just five actors? Well, it's interesting because when I got the commission, I was told I was only allowed four. <laughs> so Creation Theatre said, um, can you do this for four people? And I was like, no yeah sure no no my god no yes yes because you just say yes don't you and then you make it work and then uh when we had the casting day uh when we had the the day of auditions which was one big day it, it was bananas we met i mean everybody we met was magnificent and then to our absolute delight uh lucy askew who is um the incredible um executive director of um creation theater um and just an angel on this planet said, do you know what? Why don't you have five people? And it was quite funny, but it was, it was, that was both simultaneously brilliant and a nightmare because, and I didn't say the nightmare part to them, but I'd written it for four. Um, And that had been really hard. And as I was writing it, because there's so many characters had colored post-it strings things on my wall to work out which actor would play which part to make sure I never accidentally clashed people so they had to fall in love with themselves or anything like that so I'd worked out how it would work with these four people and then she said oh you can have five and that was fine and it was brilliant and it opened up loads of possibilities but it mean I had to it meant I had to get a fifth color post-it note <laughs> and um real rethink all that again but it was totally worth it because it, it opened up to me five is huge and luxurious now because i always imagined it was four and it makes me laugh when people go how did you do that with just five people and i'm like five is amazing <laughs> i find that doing because i i direct plays and i've always got the same issue it's always you know lack of lack of budget four people can we do that with a 200 person play and but i find that it gives you it unlocks a kind of creative muscle do you find that and actually the possibilities become more and more when you're when you're limited and you have to think outside the box 
all these quirky ideas come on the table. Totally, totally. And it's, I mean, I, I completely feel that the restrictions you have, the more interesting and also the clearer you could be. Anything else after that is, a, well, it's a wank. It's like a big indulgent, you know, it's like an extra. Um, and so if you have limitations, like you've only got so many people or you've only got this plain bit of space, I think it can help you with that task of being clear and telling the story, which is the number one job. I mean, how many times have you ever, don't you find like sometimes you go to a, an amazing play or, or, or a movie and you, you're really impressed by it, but you don't really get what's going on. People keep saying that about Tenet. Have you guys seen Tenet? I saw it and it reminded me a bit of when I was about 11 and I saw The Matrix and I like pretended to understand it to fit in. <laughs> it was like, you know, you're at school and everyone's going, do you see The Matrix? And I was like, yeah, got so good. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it's so cool, wasn't it? I didn't know what the hell was going on. And it's the same well, with Tenet. Yeah. I left thinking, what did I just watch? I have this kind of sort of rule that if, if, if the audience aren't with you, if they're not following, if they're not thinking, I want this to happen or I hope this happens, then you've kind of not done your job really mm. you've not done your most important job so so yeah those restrictions of the of the small cast and the basics that we have with our you know with theatre when we make it ourselves hopefully means that we remember to do all that stuff well let's go back <laughs> to the to the story and to the the genesis of it why bleak house what was your reason for choosing this story in particular it's funny it's not one of the most famous ones uh and uh i was i was expecting creation to reject that uh for that reason um i sort of had a, a meeting with them i'd done a small project um previously that was a little a little site specific piece called playing the king which we did in a, a lovely castle in oxfordshire that um queen elizabeth the first used to live in and we did this lovely little piece that only had about four shows and then i had the yeah, you know, i was lucky enough to have another meeting with them and they were like oh pitch um, I can tell, I can say this now because I've, I've done the job, but uh, when I had this sort of catch up and this coffee, I was kind of hoping they'd get me to do playing the king again or something. And then in the meeting, she said, um, Lucy said, you know, gosh, and pitch away, Liv. You know, if there's anything you've got in your head, you want to pitch it to us, you should pitch it. And in my head, I thought, oh God, I should have, yeah, I should have thought of that really. I should have got a pitch ready. So I smiled wanly and I said, well, you know what? I've always wanted to write a musical adaptation of Bleak House by Charles Dickens. And weirdly, as the words came out of my mouth, I, I was like, oh yes, that's true. <laughs> I actually always have. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't consciously thought when I was going to have a coffee with them that I'd, you know, say, I want to do this, but I always have. I've always been in love with that book. I, I read it on a, on a long commute when I was doing a, a show in Oxford. And I was taking the Oxford Tube, which is a middle of the night bonkers bus that a lot of people will have heard of, back and forth to London every night. And I had these long commutes on the coach, open a beer and read Bleak. It took me the duration to read it. It's such an extraordinary story that, yeah, there's tons of reasons why I wanted to adapt it. You did mention that um, it's a musical version that you adapted. How else did you adapt it? The most obvious one is I had to cut a lot out of it because it, it's massive um as you as you guys know which is one of the reasons why it's not so famous because it's a big big bugger to read so i had to cut a lot of story threads and people out and that was the first main thing i had to do uh i had a very specific way of doing that i had to slightly soften the language just a bit because 
Charles Dickens has got an amazing way with words, but um, there's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of, of kind of fantastic description and it's a little bit archaic. It's gorgeous. And for some reason, when you're reading it in your own private head, that can work quite nicely, but I felt I needed to slightly simplify the language just a bit. So I did that a little bit as well. And the music helped that because the music, what songs can do is they can show you a whole big thought process yeah. in a moment. They can show you a whole big picture and a whole big world in a moment. There's a lot of fantastic stuff in Bleak House and all of Dickens' work where you're, you start a chapter and somebody arrives at somebody's house and then you realise that you've been 10 pages into the chapter and we haven't even met who lives in the house yet because we've described everything in the house and the smell of the house and the chestnuts and the this and, you know, and the wallpaper and the other things. And he paints the picture of the world for you. Theatre can do that instantly and music can open up that kind of atmosphere for you. I think it was paid by the sentence, which is yeah. why he just rambles on for ages. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'll just put another descriptive sentence in there. And then just... Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, if I was paid by the sentence, we'd be talking about a very different show. We'd be talking <laughs> about, you know, a nine hour, 10, you know, thing that you had to come over so, several days to come and see. Um, yeah, I think they cottoned on to that sort of like after the Victorian times, they kind of went, hang on a minute. Mm. I mean, I'm reading a George Eliot book at the moment and I think it's beautiful, but I was wondering that very same thing. I was like, is she getting paid per word here? Because we spent a lot of time in this field. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of had to take all of that extraordinary, beautiful atmosphere and imagery and sort of concentrate it down. And a very good way of doing that is to, is to, is to have songs. Lovely. It's so great having this adaptation to talk about because it was so different. And you set it in a bookshop or it was, it, it was performed in a bookshop. Was that your choice to have it there? Or was that something where you just got given it and you were like, right, it's a bookshop. Let's, let's work, work <laughs> it to the best of our advantage. Uh, that was absolutely creations uh, thing. And, and again, it's another example of a, of a sort of restriction or a sort of specification that then opens up doors for you in a brilliant way. Um, they have this gorgeous thing where they do it every two years and hopefully they'll get to do it again soon where they just erect a stage in the middle of Blackwell's bookshop, which is this brilliant big bookshop in the middle of Oxford, a very old bookshop. And to me, Bleak House fit perfectly there because there's a lot, a huge theme of paperwork and words weighing people down. And a lot of it's in a courtroom and there's, and I, and I incorporated that into my, I sort of, into my stage directions, people are weighed down with paper all the time. And I suggested that some props might be made of those papers. And then, as is the glorious thing that happens when you write a play, you hand it to a creative team and they kind of play with that and open up that more. So they had gorgeous things. The, the costumes were, they looked kind of papery. Oh. And all of the, there, there's a lot of, there's a huge theme of birds and birdsong in, in the play as well. And they made the birds were all books, which is so simple that it hadn't occurred to me when I was writing it. But yeah, as soon as they got in the rehearsal room, they were like, well, these, these books open and, and flap their wings. Um, and, yeah. it, and it just sort of emerged. And, and Deb Newbold, our director, uh, sort of reconfigured the beginning a little bit to make uh, the cast uh, people that worked in Blackwell's bookshop. They, she decided that would be the premise. So they were kind of wandering around and they were opening up the books and then they picked this one and it kind of blossomed out of the book. 
so it kind of just lent itself in a it, you know and what's kind of cool about this sort of thing is that if if we hadn't had a bookshop if we'd had something else cannot think of a single thing in my head now like oh you know anything else if they'd had a plumbing shop if they'd had a, a fruit grocer's store or something we'd have found that would have been our way in um and it would have just given us gifts the, the the story is about them looking for this manuscript like they're looking for um yeah. uh what's his name the guy the guy that the, the thing that they need to find for the um for the jandice uh, case and you could have so much fun feel, with that like yeah. that could it could be like what bookcase is it in and where you know it's it's awesome yeah, yeah, there was tons of, of fun with that kind of thing and papers being, there were lovely moments of papers being flung everywhere and sort of raining all over the, you know, all over the characters. And uh, yeah, the whole thing is they are desperate or some of the characters become fixated with finding this will, which will uh, leave them lots and lots of money. Richard in particular uh, is the young man who, they're all orphans in the story and um, they all are sort of brought together to live in Bleak House and uh, they're sort of told they've got this, that there's this will and it's so old that they've been talking about it in court for years and years and years and eventually if it ever got resolved there'd be some money for them but um, you know they're all kind of told particularly by John Jarndyce uh, don't you know? Don't worry about that. Will forget about it. We've all been freaking out about it for years, and it's driven people mad. But Richard becomes fixated with it. So um, Bart, the brilliant actor Bart Lambert, who played Richard, had just this wonderful scenes where he was just scrambling among these papers, which were just built, which were just covering the stage, which was surrounded by books, and he was searching constantly for this for this piece of paper that would help him get this thing. So yeah, it connected. The bookshop connected perfectly to the story. Oh, I just like, I'm jealous. I just want to go and sit in bookshops again. It used to be my favorite thing. I just, in, in the middle of a day in between castings, I would just go and sit in a bookshop and try and find something new or just kill some hours there. It's such a luxury. Yeah, yeah. It, there's so many things we just took for granted and that's one of them. I was, yeah. a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fanatical about, I don't really let myself go in bookshops even when they're open because it's one of those things you can, you know, if you go and see some dress or a pair of shoes, you can have a conversation with yourself, can't you? Yeah. And go, go, oh, come on. But when it's books, I just go, no, nourishing, nourishing. Yes. It's good. And <laughs> spend all the money. <laughs> I always come home and my husband's like, that more books. And I'm like, yes. And he's like, well, you need to take three off the bookshelf and donate them so that you can fit them on because there's no space. <laughs> Big part of our podcast is we always like um, direct people at the end of it towards versions where you can watch it or see it. And obviously there is a wonderful BBC adaptation. I think it's like 15 episodes or something ridiculous. Were you inspired by any adaptations for your version or did you just go in with your own idea? Um, I, ha I, I consciously ignored all other adaptations. I mean, Bleak House has been one of my favourite books for years and years, which is why I wanted to write this adaptation. Um, and there was that wonderful BBC one. I heard it was wonderful, mm. but I didn't, I didn't go near it. Um, and I was quite uh, anal about it. I really didn't want to I don't I don't know why because I, I don't think I would have been swayed from my train of thought it's you have to sort of when you're writing anything you have to allow it to start forming itself in your head I do anyway I kind of have to kind of daydream yeah and let it form its own picture and then I go right what am I seeing something has caught my interest enough to appear in my imagination what am I going to, I have to describe that and I have to let that lead me. So 
I kind of needed to stay there. Yeah. Uh, and and but I'm going to watch that BBC one now. I think. Yeah, it's on um, iPlayer at the moment. It's very good. I bet. I bet. I've just finished it. It took me. It took me a couple of days. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> but it's so good though. It's really. I mean, I find one of the things about Dickens that's so extraordinary just the vast array of characters and one of the unfortunate mm. things sometimes about a podcast is you know when you do the narrative you have to keep it quite um succinct so you just got to make sure that you include all the guppies and the you know yeah. all these people that are so juicy yeah completely um i what i had to do because i knew i wasn't allowed to write an 11 hour play um because creation were really boring and they said i wasn't allowed to do that um it's uh what i and what was natural to me anyway the thing i love most about the book is the character of esther she is the main character really half of it is through her eyes and from her voice uh anyway but i made it esther's story entirely and most of the other narratives do connect to her narrative yeah anyway but not quite all and not all fully. Yeah. So what I did was I treated the whole thing as Esther's story and I made her, she was the green post-it note. She was in the middle. Uh, and I, uh, okay, I was very fixated about the post-its thing. Um, and then, so all the other stories, as I read the book a couple of, you know, a few times through as I was going, making the adaptation or structuring it, I kept things in that served her story and they didn't serve her story and her exact narrative from beginning to end that put them on the, you might have to go pile. Yeah. Um, but then frequently a few times people were on the pile and then I'd get to page 900 and go, Oh shit. I need you back, Mr. Badger, because you've say this one thing in chapter two. And you, that means, so then I, I merged some people as well, which felt highly incestuous. But, um, <laughs> Some people are actually, they, they've, you know, Mr. Guppy actually does a couple of things that other smaller characters do, you know, that, that they're built into. Mm. Um, I kept telling myself that Dickens wouldn't be cross with me because he, um, he was forever altering his own work and he was a very theatrical yeah. writer himself. I hope he wouldn't mind. No, he's exactly the same as you, a writer-actor. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing feat to, to do what you've done and to take a story that expansive and to make it so clear and so, so successful as it, as it undoubtedly was. If there's one lesson you think that the story teaches you, what do you think that lesson is? It sounds a bit basic because uh, the, book, the book's so huge, but I genuinely think that its main story is about accepting yourself just accepting yourself as the as who you are mm. and accepting that you are enough which is so and actually it's one of the reasons i was really keen to do it so in this modern age because it's a very modern message you know this kind of feeling of you don't have to give in to other people's ex expectations you don't have to fight you don't have to you are enough um the victorians lived in this very puritanical world very religious world which i really really leaned on in the book where you know there's a huge part of the story which is about um esther's mother being disgraced because she had esther out of wedlock and mm. esther is consumed this is why she was for me the center of it all because she's in many ways she's all women esther esther's consumed by this thing that she's wrong that she's not good enough mm. and that she constantly must work to be better because she was born wrong 
Yeah. And in the Victorian world of religion and, you know, Puritanism and fallen women and things, that that was very real. If you were born out of wedlock, you were less and you just were less and that was it. Mm. I kind of wanted to platform this woman who was a good human woman with friendships and loyalty, who was a kind woman who just hated herself. Yeah. really hated herself and she's our main character and um it was so interesting to me that dickens had written half the book from her point of view so weird and interesting that he would write from the perspective of a, of a woman yeah. of a young woman yeah. so curious such a curious thing to do half of it's from her point of view and half of it's from this other outside point of view yeah. which i think is charles dickens himself and that's such a curious thing to do um but yeah the, the essential message is you, you know you are enough and it is nobody's business not society's not anybody else's to judge you or make you feel that you should be better or that you are not good and the main musical theme was uh, from one tiny little thing that esther does say quote from the book which is i would try to be good and that's just a tiny little short sentence quite early on in the book and the whole first opening number is called try and it's about Esther's absolutely like agonizing effort to be trying all the time to be a good person and the whole for me the whole anchor of the whole story was the different ways in which people try mm. they strive and they struggle and try to be this sort of imaginary thing and achieve this sort of notional stuff rather than just living their lives in the exact moment that they're in yeah. I think you're going to send us a little clip. Um, so we will play that for our listeners now. Okay, it'll probably be that try song. <laughs> Wonderful. So here's, okay. here's, here's a little section of try um, from what you were just talking about, uh, just so that our listeners can get a little taste of it. I know I am a burden on her And she's all that I've got not Never cry, be most grateful and try to be good. Do as you try, 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 try. It were better, Esther, that you had never had a birthday. That you had never been born. That was lovely. Thank you for sending us that so we could actually listen to it. And it's so great as well. It's so, in, it's so inspiring what you've, what you've done. It really is. It's so wonderful in this kind of age, I think, when, um, you know, we don't have theatre and there's the chance that people might be opening up their doors soon and we might have some outdoor theatre this summer. Just to take a story which is so recognisable and to have the boldness to just take, to just do it in any way you want. You can get five actors and just get them in a bookshop and do something magical and write some music. Like it's so inspiring. So you should be really, really proud of it. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I was really incredibly chuffed with how it turned out. I was very proud to have done it. And I love praise and compliments. They're like my favorite thing. So thanks for that. Because I, yeah, I really like it. I've got a massive ego. So it helps me with that. But also I, 
just really like it storytelling and I love creating stuff like this and I you know sometimes people are sort of going wow you work so hard and you do all this stuff but I really just do the stuff I really like doing and don't make any effort at all with anything else quite quite lazy really in every other element of my life um, so I just felt like it was a massive treat I enjoyed every second of it and I grieve for it because I it was a baby that I, you know, and I was so glad it got its full run, which ended, you know, only a matter of weeks before we all went into lockdown. But um, yeah, I've, I, I'm very proud of that. Thank you so much. You've been such a lovely, fascinating, uplifting guest. Oh gosh, thank you very much. Cheers. It was really, really fun to be asked to come on here and I'm lovely to meet you both. Thank you. <laughs> lovely to meet you, Olivia. Thank you so much. What a great guest. Yeah, she was lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm so glad that she gave us a little clip of her music. It's beautiful. So this is the part of the podcast where we tell you where you can watch it or read it or experience it. I think we've basically given away what, what we both want to suggest is as the one that we would recommend. It's definitely got to be that BBC version, which is on iPlayer at the moment. Yeah, that, it's, it's that for me. I mean, that I, I would I would just direct people there. I think if we were to direct you anywhere else, we would be doing you a disservice because um, it is so good and it's really, really brilliant. And it gives you a sense of what it would have been like at the time to experience his stories episodically um, with all those cliffhangers and all those great moments. The acting is extraordinary. Um, you've got amazing performances from Carrie Mulligan, Charles Dance, Timothy West. Um, I'm going to forget pretty much, you know, everyone else, but they are all incredible. And uh, yeah, it's just really, really great. So go for that one. Yeah. And I think we we would be unfair not to mention Anna Maxwell Martin. I think she is absolutely oh, st stunning performance in that show. She is incredible. There is also a full Bleak House audio available through if you have an iPhone, the podcast app. So they've done that in episodes as well, which is, is brilliant. They've done all the chapters. So literally each episode that you listen to is a different chapter. And that was all released in 2020. So it's very, very recent. Um, 67 chapters. So you want to listen to a chapter a day, go for it. Thank you so much for joining us again for another Charles Dickens experience. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe. And yeah, I hope all of you are okay in this fairly bleak lockdown. Join us next week where we will be looking at another classic. Bye. Bye.